as the grandson of Faber's founder, Toby Faber grew up steeped in the company's books and its stories. He was Faber's managing director for four years and remains a non-executive director and chairman of sister company Faber Music. He's written two celebrated works of nonfiction, Stradivarius and Fabergé's Eggs, and his first novel, Close to the Edge, was published by Muswell Press. In 2019, he lives in London with his wife and two daughters. Today, we're going to talk about Faber and Faber. It was the untold story. Still is. Yep. Well, uh, except it's been told now. Yes, fair enough. (laughs) (laughs) The untold story now told by Toby Faber. Welcome to the Bibliophile. Thank you, Nigel. Nice to be back. At the very end of your book, you say, and this comes from actually, this comes from a press release, because you've recruited all sorts of people to tell the story. You're stringing it together using their own words, correct? That's right. It's a more immediate way of telling the story, I think. If you've got the board memos and the diary entries and the letters, and they happen to be written by some really good writers, then actually, why not use them rather than try to paraphrase them? Right. So at the end of that press release, it talks about the company being determined to live up to the hopes and intentions of its founder, Sir Jeffrey Faber. So what were those hopes and intentions? To be editorially led, I think, is at the crucial, is at the heart of it, really. To be a publisher, an old, and in many ways, the sort of publisher that wouldn't have seemed remarkable to my grandfather, just a publisher that in the 20s and 30s uh, was trying to bring out the books that it thought were the best and most interesting and would have a future, but also to balance that, because this was always something my grandfather was concerned with, books of the moment, uh, that would uh, help keep the turnover going in that particular year of publication. And in that sense, that's what Faber has always tried to do with more or less success over the years. And I'm pleased to say I think it still succeeds. Well, judging by the number of Nobel Prize winners you have in your backlist, just since 1990, when you you conclude this book, you're still doing the right thing here. Yes. To a certain extent, of course, it's success can breed success. So you can have a a virtuous circle where, because in particular, obviously, if you think about poetry, going right back to T.S. Eliot, Faber has had a name for publishing poetry, and that in turn has attracted great poets onto the Faber list, which makes it easiest for us to continue having a great name publishing poetry. It sheds its own sort of luster on the rest of the list. And you think about our playlist, of course, uh, but then you also think about our fiction list, especially over the last 20 or 30 years. And you, again, you can see that starting to be really exciting and from a literary as well as a commercial point of view. Yeah, I mean, as much as anything, it's it's the great voices, the great writers that you have in your stable that serve as a calling card. Yes, that's right. It's not uh, that hard it, to recruit, I don't think. You just say, look who we've got. It depends who you're talking to. So first of all, in terms of recruiting, of course, you're talking about the people who we want to who come to work at Faber. And I think a lot of them do feel that Faber has that history. Sometimes it can be a weight of history, but generally it means that they know we will be a place which tries to publish the best work. And that in turn, of course, helps you attract the best people. And that in turn means we're more likely to publish the best work. I mean, again, it's a virtuous circle, but it's also recruit in terms of recruiting, most obviously our authors. And again, I think there are many authors who like the idea of being published. I mean, going back to the old days by the House of Elliot. These days, it might be the House of Heaney or it might be... Uh, the House of Ishiguro, whoever else you want to choose. Nevertheless, there's still that sense that uh, they are joining, as you say, a stable, which which means something. And the very fact that the Faber brand means something on a book uh, is something that I'm proud of. Well, it's not a coincidence that it's independent, too. I I I, I absolutely agree. And I, I, I am a fierce defender of that independence. I say defender, it makes it sound as though people are attacking it, and they're not really. Well, I mean, and my grandfather said this as well. Basically, the moment you're taken over, then fine, you might still have that brand and that colour font. But in the end, that's all it is. It yeah. is not all the accompanying culture 
and everything else that goes along with it. And by being an independent company, uh, that is, as you say, part of what makes Faber what it is. Well, speaking of your grandfather, uh, Jeffrey was a classical scholar who joined the Oxford University Press directly out of university in 1913. Following war service, he was elected a fellow of All Souls and was made a director of his family brewery. So you guys are in the beer business. Yeah, a lot more money in brewing than, than, than publishing. So I think it was rather to my grandfather's regret at times uh, that he didn't, didn't get on well enough with his cousins and was sacked after a couple of years. Uh, but obviously, in the end, to the long-term benefit, I think probably of his sanity, quite apart from anything else. Well, it, it, here, and I'm, and I'm quoting from one of my favorite books uh, by Ian uh, Stevenson, who tragically was taken from us. It's called Bookmakers, British Publishing in the 20th Century. He quotes your grandfather as saying, I began my business career in a publisher's office, i.e. OUP, but I spent three years of it in a far more lucrative form of business. For those three years, I was managing a director in a big brewery, but I have never been so bored in my life. So I had the best of all reasons, personal experience, for saying I would rather be making a competence out of books than a fortune elsewhere. To me, at least, books are better. Well, there you go. He said it very well, hasn't he, already? <laughs> I'm, glad, I'm glad that I hadn't heard that before, so I'm glad it backs up what I just sort of extemporized. <laughs> <laughs> well, as I say, it sounds to me like it was more of a choice than him getting sacked, but maybe that's just his spin on it. I think that was probably him putting his spin at the time. I read his diaries. He, he goes to a board meeting, and as I can't remember the name of the person, but somebody drops his bomb, his bomb being that, uh, Jeffrey has indeed been sacked. <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, uh, if you'll just indulge me here, I, I just want to, uh, I just want to read out uh, his publishing credo, if I may. Please do. Yeah. Conditions have altered. This was written in 1931. Conditions have altered very much since the 19th century. Lending libraries, book societies, newspaper stunts, the enormous increase of published books, the standardization of business methods, these things have taken a lot of the individuality out of the book trade. The old moral earnestness has largely gone, and though there is a far bigger potential reading public than there used to be, it takes no serious interest in books. On the face of things, the conditions for book selling and for publishing too are about as unpropitious as they could well be. However, we may be about to see an increase of serious interest and real revival of the more solid and important form of book selling the principal reason for this is that we are undoubtedly in for a bad time. There is the perception that things are already seriously wrong with the world as a whole and with ourselves in particular. And the consequence will, I think, be that numbers and numbers of people will begin to ask themselves all sorts of questions which only books can answer. And then Ian adds, Although he spoke the above in 1931, when the depth of the recession was already clear, Faber's view that serious books could enlighten, shape, warn, and rescue, as well as entertain, was the guiding principle of his new publishing house from the beginning. Great, isn't it? And doesn't it resonate so well with where we are now? I'm sure that's why you read it. I used to give speeches where I would read out extracts from things my grandfather had said and then said that was that was 70 years ago or whatever it was. It, it's amazing how so many of the uh, concerns and worries of the book trade, but also, as you say, the hopes come round in cycles. Or perhaps, basically, things never really change, <laughs> depending on the point of view you want to take. Yes. People are always <laughs> thinking it was better in the past <laughs> or always looking forward to the future. Yeah. 
Well, one of the things too that's delightful is that Faber published all sorts of, I would almost say eccentric titles. That's what makes so many of the, the books on its backlist so utterly charming. I think probably small-scale po- poultry keeping is still in print. That's, we have a number of books from those. Those were all, a lot of those titles were taken on by Richard de la Mare. Uh, that was part of the so-called muck and mystery list. And then, yes, I mean, just a hugely eclectic list at times. Uh, we've definitely focused it down over the years uh, to try to be, well, I suppose, focused on our more obvious strengths on the literary side of things. Uh, yeah. But in the past, yes, we were absolutely a really, a really general publisher. Anything that took anyone's interest. Any good book. Yes, yes. And again, as, as from a collector's standpoint, from someone who loves books, uh, here, uh, I'm going to hold this up so that, you know, our audience can't see it. <laughs> but this, it's got such a fantastic uh, cover on it. Uh, it's called Through Wooden Eyes, and the cover's by someone called Francis Gower. And it's all about Jan Bussell's trips around Europe seeking out wooden puppets and puppet masters and puppet theaters. That's just fantastic. <laughs> yeah, it's, I mean, a niche interest. <laughs> but. I suspect that would have been one of Richard de la Mare's as well. He had an amazingly wide view of interest. And indeed, I mean, that probably would have been, in some sense, part of the art list at Faber, which was yeah. a really important part of the firm in the, in the 40s and 50s, which eventually, you know, te- technology moved on from us, publishing skills moved on from us. And so we had to abandon it by the 1980s. Yeah. Well, speaking about recruiting, uh, that's one of the key attributes of your grandfather you identify and uh, one of the obvious early successful recruits was T.S. Eliot. That's right. My grandfather had this idea that he was going to turn the scientific press, this, this publisher in which he'd become, well, he'd become, become managing director, basically because of his All Souls connection, as, uh, as already discussed. He was going to turn it into a more general publisher and he had the support of his partners, the Guires, in doing that. And he thought it, that it would be nice for it to have a literary magazine. And it was somebody who he knew through All Souls, although he wasn't a fellow of All Souls, called Charles Wibley, a, a relatively well-known journalist at the time, who said, well, I already write for a literary magazine called The Criterion. Perhaps you should have a word with its editor. Uh, and so they met. Elliot, of course, was editing The Criterion. He and my grandfather met in late 1924 and just got on terribly well. And I think pretty quickly started exchanging letters about what they might do together. My grandfather's interest at the beginning was certainly in the criterion mainly, but it led to Elliot himself joining the Faber and Guire board, crucially, of course, bringing his own books with him at the time, which rather rather annoyed the Hogarth Press, who had previously published him. So on the opening list of Faber and Guire was Elliot's collected poems to 1925. So that in turn gives the firm a character immediately. Uh, and Elliot's own present gives presence gives the firm a character although you don't see much of it actually in the early years I think he's still I mean he's spending a lot of time on the criterion uh, Elliot himself like my grandfather are all still feeling their way a bit but so it's only really when Faber and Guire becomes Faber and Faber in 1929 uh, that you really see Elliot's own publishing start to take off in terms of the poets he starts bringing onto the list and the other people he starts bringing onto the list uh, but yes I'm sure T.S. Eliot when you met him must have been an impressive man to meet. And my grandfather was clearly impressed when he met him. But also they got on well personally. Well, you tell the story of how they're both a bit shy. And uh, I, I don't know who said it, but they were just sort of shuffling around in an embarrassed little conversation yeah. about ballet. So that's from an exchange of letters in the 1950s. When, I mean, this is another thing about Eliot. When Eliot essentially is volunteering to take a step back and to take a cut in his own salary so that my grandfather can make another appointment, which we could get onto in a mo. But part, anyway, part of that, of course, is they need to formalise that arrangement. So there's a formal exchange of memos between my grandfather and Elliot about that arrangement, but accompanied by this really touching informal exchange as well when they reminisce about that first meeting, which is lovely. Yes, yes it really is. Well, I must say, 
couple of things, uh, sort of myth-busting things here. First of all, that that the British are standoffish and a bit cold and unfeeling. That's one thing I get from the, the letters that are exchanged by, by these two particularly, but throughout the book, is that there's real empathy and emotion and concern about each other as human beings in a business. Well, uh, thank you. I'm, I, you're right, of course. And I mean, it, it, it is just a myth. They had been through the fire together, you know, in the sense of in those early years, the 1925, the Faber and Guire years, it was all quite tough because Faber and the Guires were not getting on. Yeah. And Elliot found himself being the middleman between them, trusted by the Guires as a useful middleman, not so much because of his poetry, but because he'd been a banker before and right, therefore right. was thought to be thought to, <laughs> thought to have a business brain. Um, right. So, I mean, it had been going on for a long time and it was, yes, it was a long friendship formed in business, but absolutely uh, extending into their personal life as well. I mean, uh, as you know, Elliot would join my grandfather's family for a week's holiday every year in the house they owned in, in Wales. He was my father's godfather. He was a terrific godfather to my father. Uh, there's a, there, there are all these different links, links going on. He got on very well with my grandmother as well. Uh, all of that. Well, I mean, I don't know about you, but my experience in business, uh, any success that I've achieved has been a result of a close friendship and it seems to me that a big part of the success of, of this company is friends going through uh, the battles together and experiencing uh, success and failure. I, I, I think that's right and it is so much easier well, to deal with failure uh, if you have friends with whom to share it and frankly yeah. so much easier to have success or to generate success if you have friends that will help you generate it and to celebrate yeah. it too yeah coming back to my grandfather's qualities and again i say this in the book i think he probably himself would not have said i am a brilliant publisher uh, it's hard to it's hard to look at books on the faber list now and say oh yeah those are the ones that he brought that he brought onto the list i mean you can argue with a few of them uh, so it was all about him bringing people into the firm and supporting them. So not just Elliot, but also Richard de la Mer, as I've already talked about. Frank Morley was a really crucial person when he arrived in 1929. And then, of course, the next generation coming after the war. Charles Monteith as an editor and Peter de Soto as a sort of managing director for the firm. Uh, yeah. So he, he, he had two really fertile periods. I mean, for two generations, uh, my grandfather was being a really good talent spotter. Well, getting back to the, the failures, when you do have difficult times, it sure helps to have someone around who's got a really good sense of humor. This yeah. group that you talk, that, that, you know, that you write about and have them write, they had a lot of fun together, didn't they? They did have a lot of fun, especially in the 1930s. Uh, and, uh, you say to help cope with failure. I think 1930s Faber was, uh, was feeling quite bullish. They yeah. they'd come through the beginning of the Great Depression. They were they were clearly making a name for themselves really quickly as a literary publisher. And although they were never generating huge profits, they felt they were on an upward track. And indeed, they were. Those are the circumstances under which they would play all these wonderful practical jokes on each other. I only cover a couple of them in the book because they're the ones that you can sort of bring out through the correspondence and things like that. There are others where there's correspondence which... Frankly, I still can't work out what on earth they were doing, but clearly they all found it terribly funny at the time. Yeah. Well, yeah, in joke, right? Exactly. You had to be there. Yeah. Um, I mean, one of the things about Faber, in addition to obviously to the, the literary quality, is the way the books look and feel. And uh, Richard de la Mer, you uh, say, had, had a big role in that. Maybe you could talk a bit about that. Yeah, I mean, Richard Delamere, I mean, he's a great character in himself, of course. He is the son of the poet Walter Delamere, had started working in publishing initially for, I think, his uncle's firm, and only realised that wasn't going to get him anywhere. Another early recruit by my grandfather, uh, who writes to Alcine Aguirre, his co-shareholder, co something along the lines of, young Delamere seems to have an awful, a lot of ordinary practical ability, open brackets, the sons of metaphysical poets often do, close brackets, which I think <laughs> is a wonderful 
a wonderful aside. That's what he brings. So he brings the practical ability is immediately expressed really in production and design. And it's really interesting how Richard de la Mer, with no real obvious experience in that area, immediately starts to take a hold of this and start to produce some really interesting things. He also, of course, brings his own contacts, literary contacts that he has through his father and his uncle, most obviously early on, C. Fried Sassoon and the firm's first bestseller, Memoirs of a Fox Hunting Man. But in terms of the production, he has the idea quite early on, and I'm pretty sure it is his idea, uh, that the firm should do the Ariel poems, which you'll know about well, of course, as a, an antiquarian bookseller. Oh, no, not uh, a seller. Toby, I'm not a seller, no. Not, uh, you're not a seller. I'm <laughs> you're not, only a buyer. I'm not, I'm not smart enough to be a seller. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> uh, anyway, these lovely Christmas pamphlets, about half a dozen every Christmas for about half a dozen years, each one the first edition of a poem. For a start, that means probably in the early Faber and Guire years, because they're, they're, they're commissioned poems. Richard de la Mer is commissioning poetry as much as T.S. Eliot, and that's something to think about. So when you see Faber publishing Seafree Sassoon and Walter de la Mer and all the other poets in the Ariel poems, as well as, of course, as T.S. Eliot himself, in many ways that's being commissioned by Richard de la Mer. And then he also commissions to go alongside them, and they're nice productions in their own right, uh, but he commissions lovely artwork to go with each poem. Yeah. McKnight Kaufer classically to go with the Eliot poems, some of the great artists of that era like Revilius and Nash and uh, Barnett Friedman, for example. Uh, in doing that, he is then making contact with some of the great illustrators of the era, who he then goes on to use uh, in cover designs and cover illustrations uh, for Faber books. It, it, it was a really good thing to start off doing, and he was able to, it stood him well for the rest of his life. In 1941, you get the appointment of Bertolt Volpe. And again, that brings a whole other character to uh, Faber's covers and Faber's designs. I'm not a professional antiquarian bookseller, but I am a collector, and I do have the first 10 of those aerial poems. So, And aren't they lovely things? And they're still, still so tactile, and so they, did, they, they read wonderfully in the hands. They were, they, they were a lovely idea. Yes, and I, as you say, I think they really sort of established this uh, fact that that Faber really was uh, committed to and interested in beautiful production. Yeah. And uh, you still get people saying that about Faber books today. Yeah. Uh, that, that they are nicely produced. Uh, and I think that's right. And I, I, I mean, this is not just a Faber comment, but I think generally over the last 10, 20 years, standards of book production have gone up. Yeah, uh, And that's partly because, of course, the book now has to make sense as an object and not just as a way of reading text. Uh, because if you just want to read text, you can do that on a, on a Kindle or whatever. Uh, so by being forced to compete with e-books, the books as a physical product have, have improved. Yeah, by necessity, yeah. Yeah. The, the last time we met, I, I know we spent a fair amount of time on the physical, the physical Faber books. And in fact, you gave me this beautiful uh, book by Joseph uh, Connolly, 80 Years of Book Cover Design yes. uh, at Faber and Faber. Uh, I, I assume that's still uh, on sale and available to still listeners? Still on sale and available, I'm pretty sure. Yes, I think so. It's just <laughs> such a burst of beautiful. Oh, it is. It is. Yeah. And then another thing we have is we have a box of Faber postcards, 100 Faber postcards, uh, which are classic covers from the Faber era, uh, which are rather lovely as well. No, I didn't, I didn't realize that. So these are, what, these are postcards that Faber would have sent out to promote various uh, books? No, no, they are, they're, they're newly made postcards made from old covers. So some of the okay. famous Faber covers, you know, the, the, for example, the first edition cover of Lord of the Flies uh, is one of the postcards in that, in that box of 100. Okay. I've been thinking about putting book covers on uh, T-shirts. How about, how about we get into that? <laughs> well, we, the truth is we, we've tried various things like that. And uh, we can never quite make it work. We've, tried, we've got some cushions lying around the office somewhere. I think <laughs> we've got a deck chair. <laughs> All of these things we've tried never <laughs> quite made them work. But the postcards, there is a demand for. Okay. <laughs> uh, the problem is that, you know, you're using these postcards to, to write a thank you letter to somebody or something like that. And some of them are fine. You know, the lovely Ambrose Heath covers, uh, good food by Ambrose Heath and things like that. Those are perfect for when you're writing a thank you card to somebody. 
things like um, the end of the affair. No, sorry, that's a Graham Greene, but uh, an American romance and things like that, which are faintly, faintly uh, risque pictures of naked women and stuff like that. You think, who am I going to send that to? Yeah. Um, speaking of Barnett Friedman, uh, in the book you uh, juxtapose the first cover of Members of a Fox Hunting Man, right? Yeah. And then you, you re-released it with a, a Barnett Friedman cover, right? Well, it's a, is it sequel with the Barnett Friedman cover? So Memoirs of a Fox Hunting Man, Faber and Guire, just towards the end in 1928. Memoirs of an Infantry Officer, 1931. Uh, we did with an, an illustrated edition by Barnett Friedman very quickly, well, in 1931. And it's just, it's the difference between those. It's kind of as good a visual way of any as seeing the way Faber and Faber was so much more creative than Faber and Guire could be, simply because they had that greater editorial freedom. Yeah, it's such a such a contrast, and such, again another a blast of brilliance, a brilliant color, and just uh, exactly. again one of Barnett Friedman's real classics. My understanding has always been that essentially that launched Barnett Friedman's career. He'd done a few uh, Ariel poems for us before, but he was he hadn't had much. Uh, but it was this that really put him on the map. Yeah, uh, there's just been that great exhibition, of course, uh, of his work at Tallent House in Chichester. Yes, I'm, I've been trying to track down the curator of that. So uh, listeners can look forward to uh, a bit more of uh, Barnett coming up. Right, good. Okay, so moving on to uh, the, the reasons behind Faber and Faber hanging on, as you say, to its independence. The first, the first reason you cite is, is luck. Yeah. I mean, you, you, you can't deny the role that luck plays in it. The classic example of luck that sort of everybody quotes is Cats being made into a musical. And that, of course, was in the 1980s. You can go right back to earlier luck. You can go back to, you know, the luck of Richard de la Mer meeting Siegfried Sassoon at his parents' house and Siegfried Sassoon saying, I'm thinking of a book about fox hunting. What do you think? I mean, the truth is, of course, publishers have to make their own luck and you make your own luck by seeing yeah. the opportunities when they arise and, and, and grasping them and riding with them. So, uh, yes, luck, but all, all good publishers have to be lucky, I think. Uh, it's like Napoleon said, I don't, I don't want to know if he's a good general, I just want to know if he's lucky. <laughs> so, well, yes, and as you say, you need to know what you're looking for. You need to, know, you yeah. need to recognize. Exactly, yeah. And that, and that itself is, uh, what is that? That's a gift? Well, I, I mean, so... Coming back to the core of it, it's about it is if you are an editorially led firm, as Faber is, then it means appointing the right editors, doesn't it? That's what it means. And once you have appointed them, trusting their judgment and backing them in their judgment. Yeah, but how do you know that they've got great taste or great judgment? How do you know? Well, that's that's the question. So, I mean, frankly, one of my grandfather's biggest pieces of luck, we've spoken about it in appointing T.S. Eliot. I think you could call that luck that they met, of course. But in a sense, he was an obvious person that was the right person to appoint. Much less obvious a point, he was the one my grandfather made in the 1950s of Charles Monteith, whose background was as a barrister, was another fellow of all soul who liked books, <laughs> basically. <Yeah. laughs> was incurably literary, as he, said to, as he said to my grandfather. Something about my grandfather's eye for a man made him realise that actually he would be a good editor to appoint. So you can say how lucky to appoint Charles Monteith how lucky that Charles Mon almost Charles Monteith's first acquisition. In fact, I think it was his first acquisition for the firm was to spot uh, the book that would become Lord of the Flies and rescue it from the slush pile. I mean, it is lucky, but it, there must have been something there to generate that luck, both in terms of spotting Charles Monteith and him spotting the book. So, yes, yeah, so you can uh, you can always ascribe it to luck if you want. Uh, but I like to think there's slightly more behind it than that. You quote uh, one John Sparrow shitting all over uh, <laughs> Gerald Monteith, and that makes John Sparrow look like a bit of a dork. Yeah, you're right. I mean, I believe, to those who know, John Sparrow is quite a distinguished person. He was warden of all souls, which, you know, is, <laughs> is no mean feat and certainly a position that at times my grandfather would have dearly loved to have himself. And, but he and John Sparrow got on quite well, my grandfather John Sparrow. Uh, and so he asked John Sparrow's advice and, as you say, John Sparrow was not kind about Charles Monteith, but not to the extent of shaking 
my grandfather's resolve that Monteith would be the good appointment. And in particular, also, of course, T.S. Eliot's resolve uh, that Monteith would be a good appointment because uh, my grandfather and Eliot very, very much collaborated in that appointment. Yeah, I just wish I could find it because it's it's so uh, such a good direct hit at his taste and exactly what you need. He's saying, yeah, you know, I, I can probably find it quite quickly. Sparrow has basically said about Monteith, I think he lacks distinction to an almost positive degree. And I probably express my surprise at the coarseness of his fiber. Didn't grate on Tommy's, I, Tom, Tom Elliot's great fastidiousness. Anyway, this is what Elliot replies. Uh, this is the first thing in his response to something that Sparrow said earlier on. I'm inclined to take seriously John's remark that Charles has flair rather than taste. So far as my observation went, this may be possible. I am not sure, from, however, that from the point of view of a firm's solvency, flair is not a more valuable asset than taste. <laughs> I have a little flair in limited areas, but I have found taste to some extent a handicap. I wonder whether if John Sparrow knew the publishing world as well as we do, he would be quite so fastidious. He's picking up uh, Sparrow's own words here uh, and putting them in quotes. I mean, he's absolutely right. Yes. Sir. And how many men are there in the business whom a person of fastidiousness would be wholly unjustified as criticizing for coarseness of fiber? Uh, so anyway, he he agrees that Charles Monteith is the right person to appoint. And you no, know, Charles Monteith in the 50s and 60s uh, was just as brilliant an editor for Faber as T.S. Eliot had been in the 20s and 30s or 30s and 40s. Uh, so it was a great appointment. Isn't that such an interesting point, though? Uh, the difference between flair and and I'm wondering if that's a euphemism for something, flair <laughs> and taste. You know, you need uh, you need the literary bona fides. You need to to know what what great work is, but you also what need to be able to spot writing that's going to capture the public imagination as well. Yeah, and I think that's right. Now, I think if I was had to characterize the difference between them from the point of view of publishing, it's that if you've got good taste, then you'll, you'll identi identify the same good books as everybody else will. But if you've got flair, then you'll find something that nobody else has identified uh, and realize that this could be something really special. That is famously what you'd see Charles Monteith doing with Lord of the Flies, a book that had been rejected by umpteen other publishers before it came to Faber. He had the flair to realize that if you cut out that first chapter and made a few other changes to the book, then you had something really special there. And this sparrow is putting down the flare. This sparrow <laughs> does not understand publishing to the yeah. extent that uh, my grandfather and T.S. Eliot do. Yes. And therefore they realize that uh, taste alone is not enough. Yeah. Okay, so we, we've touched on luck. Next is, uh, and again, we're talking about how Faber hung on to, uh, to its independence. Another reason is a publishing philosophy that without ignoring commercial imperatives has focused on excellence and the long term. Uh, the relationship with authors that last for decades and books that enter the literary canon, Faber's backlist has given it the income at the core of its financial st stability. Well, that's right. Whose books are these, the, the ones that continue to make money today? Some of them are the books that Eliot picked. Some of them are the books that Charles Monteith picked. Some of them are the books, getting a bit later, that Robert McCrum picked in the 1980s. Essentially, these days, the core of any backlist for a firm like Faber will be the books that are, in some sense, set texts. So we'll have an academic or even a school's demand driving, uh, driving readership. So you can count on sales year after year after year. Uh, so that's in the playlist and the poetry list, obviously, and in the fiction list at Faber that you get that core sales. Yeah, yeah. And it's a, it's a source of strength, but it can't be the be all and end all. In the end, the core of Faber, in a funny sort of way, has to be about its new publishing, because it's only if you're continuing to publish exciting books, frankly, year after year after year, that you remain relevant as a publisher. If all you can do is fall back on your backlist, then you sort yeah. of think, what's the point anymore? 
Yeah. And again, throughout the book, you see reference to, you know, this need that's expressed for, for exactly that sort of new revitalizing uh, editors to come in. That's what yeah. they were That's what always uh, talking about that. And you can certainly see times in Faber's history when we didn't have that. Yeah. So it was happening in the early 50s and my grandfather and Elliot were conscious and that's why they were walking Charles Monteith. And it was happening very obviously in the 1970s and Robert McCrum arrived at the end of the 70s and again, helped by money from cats, of course, led to another revivification of the Faber list. So, you, But you do need to do that regularly. And the truth yeah. is, however good an editor is, they're going to get older. And as they get older, partly uh, <laughs> they get full in the sense of they've got their stable of writers. They're going to be less likely to be looking for new writers. But also, inevitably, they are, no, they are not the same generation as the new writers coming through. You have to be conscious always of the need to, to keep on renewing. And certainly in the past, Faber has been slow about doing that. Yeah, I, again, it, it just speaking of personal experience, it's a bit like what you find funny. This young generation, a lot of the stuff that they laugh their heads off at, <laughs> I just well, don't exactly. get it. So, you know, it all comes down to recruitment in the end. As a publisher, <laughs> it's right. recruiting people who are, you know, who are in touch with, who have the flair uh, yeah. to be in touch with the zeitgeist of their particular generation. Yeah. So... Again, that's uh, speaking of uh, recruitment and uh, Jeffrey being a, a, a superb recruiter. The other point I make about, I think I, you might be about to read this, is it didn't matter when Jeffrey died or when he retired, of course, because yeah. the firm had never been just about him. So that's, I think, one of the real crucial changes. When you look at the other great imprints who started around the same time as Faber, so many of them were really so focused on their founder that without their founder, they were nothing. Yeah, yeah. Well, actually, I was going to point to a few other people that he'd recruited. I'm I'm fascinated by uh, Mitchell Kennerly, the publisher at Morley, at, Mor- Morley, Morley Kennerly. No, no, no. I'm talking Not about Frank Mid- Morley. Talk oh, Mitchell Kennerly. Sorry, Mitch. Uh, sorry, Morley's father. Is that right? Yes. 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 Sorry. Yes. <laughs> and uh, he's a fasc- fascinating character who moved to the states, worked a bit with the Knopf, mm-hmm. uh, or vice versa. And was a you know was a really interesting publisher, who sadly committed suicide quite young. But yeah, as I say, I was fascinated to to see that his son stayed in the business and played an important role with uh, with Faber. Maybe you could talk a bit about him. Yeah, so he was, I mean, a, a charming, suave young American, as far as I can understand. In some sense, he came to Faber. I mean, this is one of the as a protege of Frank Morley. So it's easy to confuse, well, not if you know them, but it, there's Frank Morley and there's Morley Kennelly. Yes, uh, so one yes. using it as a first name, the other as a last name. Yeah. Uh, so he comes essentially as Frank Morley's assistant in 1933. People used to talk about the excitement of seeing him arrive in his Rolls Royce or Bentley or whatever it was. I mean, he clearly had quite a glamorous life. Uh, his wife was best friends with Barbara Hutton. So there was all of that uh, going on as well. Yeah, he brought a lot of, interesting books of the moment to Faber. I think it's probably fair to say. Again, you probably wouldn't look at many books on the Faber list now and say those were Morley Kennelly's, uh, but he was clearly an important person and just part, an important person in terms of the being part of the team. I mean, joining in, joining in the fun and all of that. My father, who obviously was essentially, well, at one generation younger than Morley. Uh, well, Morley uh, was younger than my grandfather, but older than my father remembered Morley Kennelly with great affection, actually, as somebody who just was a lovely person to be around. Yeah. Again, that that's, speaks to having the right mix on the team. Yes. And, and Morley Kennelly, I think, for example, uh, in the days before these things were formalized, he, as much as anybody, was in charge of publicity and was presumably quite a good outgoing person to, to do that. Yeah. And, and what about Frank Morley? Where did he come from? Uh, he was, I think, a Rhodes Scholar. His father was, a, interestingly, a distinguished ma- mathematician. There are mathematicians who will know about Morley's theorem, which he did a lot of things in geometry and stuff like that. Uh, his brother, am I going to get this right? You can probably tell me. Was he editor of the New York Times? Or have, I, or have I misremembered that? There was another brother, Chris Morley, who was a writer. Yes, yes. Um, he published in quite a number of bibliophile type books yep. and so frank morley uh well he tells his own versions of these stories he was certainly an early fan of Eliot, right back in the day 
was involved early on in trying to help keep the criterion going. Uh, he was uh, in London as a representative of the Century Publishing Company and sort of got to know my grandfather then in the Faber and Guire years. And my grandfather realized uh, that he would be a good person to come and join Faber and, uh, Faber and Guire as he initially wanted. Uh, and what that meant was when Faber and Guire became Faber and Faber and my grandfather had a free hand then to recruit who he wanted. That was the point at which he brought in Frank Morley. In fact, he tried to persuade Morley uh, to buy a small shareholding, uh, to buy a big enough shareholding uh, so that it would stop not be Faber and Faber, it would become Faber and Morley because, uh, <laughs> but that's not what happened. Uh, so it was just Faber and Faber, but he did join. He was a really important principal director in the 1930s. In terms of, I think, bringing the commercial nous of somebody with good experience in commercial publishing, which is what he had. Uh, and also, in terms of, I've, I've referred to this already, in terms of giving confidence to people like Elliot to follow their instincts. He was also a big instigator of all the jokes. Uh, I think if anybody really instigated the, all the fun and games, it was Frank Morley. And he was absolutely my grandfather's right-hand man uh, in running Faber and Faber in the 1930s. And my grandfather was devastated uh, when he took an offer to go to New York at the end of the 30s, so before the war broke out, uh, to return to New York, uh, essentially to be uh, the anointed successor at Harcourt Brace. Yeah. But as my grandfather admitted in his diary, it's the kind of offer that nobody would want to, uh, could, could refuse. So Morley goes back to New York. The one benefit for me from that, in terms of writing my book, is that that means, that means that during the war, my grandfather is writing these lovely letters to Frank Morley, lovely. all about what's going on at Faber in the war. So I'm able to quote from heavily, uh, heavily in the book. And they tried to get him to come back as well at the end of the war and come back to Faber, perhaps be uh, the person anointed to take over for my grandfather, but it never quite works out. So although he comes back to England, uh, he doesn't come back to Faber. Well, look at the, the differences in the, the outlook and the, the economies of those two different uh, the countries, you know, I mean, the, the United States is just booming and uh, and going going through a boom, whereas England is like blasted to bits. Yeah, uh, and he, I mean, but Morley does come back. I mean, I think he has he has yeah. family and family in the UK by then as well. But he's clearly an Anglophile as well. Uh, he writes a book actually, and I've uh, called the Great North Road. Uh, so he's writing it immediately post-war. It starts off with him in the city of London where the first bombs fell, just surveying all this bomb damage around as he then starts to go on the Great North Road, i.e. the, a the A1, which goes from London to, to Edinburgh, uh, and sort of survey the country that way. Does he touch so, on publishing uh, in that book or not? I don't think he does in that book, no. Is there uh, a book he, that he does that in? Not that I'm conscious of, okay. uh, but he might well have written articles and stuff like that. He writes... I mean, the, there's, a, there's a really nice piece by him. There's a festschrift for T.S. Eliot, published in 1965, edited by Alan Tate, uh, for which he writes a, a piece that's really interesting. He wrote a children's book called mm -hmm. Some Point of the Compass, but I think it's East South East, about somebody who runs away to sea and joins a whaler and has great adventures. And I love that as a child. I mean, he is a really versatile man. Funny, I, someone just offered me a, a bunch of, I think it was Christopher Morley books, I turned it down, but I think it was Parnassus on Wheels is one of his books, Christopher Morley. Anyway, um, getting back on to recruitment then. Yes, you say that, that, you know, the fact that your grandfather was able to bring together this remarkable set of individuals gave, gave the, the firm some, some kind of if not financial, then certainly uh, a type of stability, staying power. Yes, because it was because it was not dependent on any one person. If your if your strength comes from you as an institution, in some sense, rather than you as an individual, yeah, that gives you staying power. So, have we ta talked enough about Monteith? Well, I've talked about Golding being his first, you know, famous acquisition. And you just you just think about all the other people he brought onto the Faber list, and you think core really. He goes to see, uh, look back in anger at the theatre, and he thinks, right, let's try and get this onto the list. Uh, he goes to see Waiting for Godot at the theatre. He thinks, let's get Samuel Beckett onto the list. 
Uh, he has been recruited to help bring on new poetry uh, because Elliot feels he needs younger eyes there. He likes the look of this young man, Ted Hughes. We've got this lovely memo where he's saying to Elliot, everybody's very conscious, of course, always with the Faber poetry list that here it is, it's this sacrosanct thing. You've got to be really careful about who you allow to join this hallowed, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. This hallowed thing. You look at the people that Elliot brought on in the 1930s, and of course, you haven't heard of half of them, uh, because in the end, he was prepared to take risks with who he brought on, and we only remember now the ones that who have been successful. Yeah. Uh, so, but uh, Monteith early on is affected by that sense of the hallowed temple. So he thinks, for example, perhaps we shouldn't take on this chap Ted Hughes quite yet. Perhaps he's not yet right. What do you think to T.S. Eliot? Uh, and es essentially, as he suggests to Eliot that perhaps if Eliot agrees, they could write a, he could write a, a letter of encouragement to the young Ted Hughes. Eliot says, no, we should take him on now. So there you've yeah. got Eliot yeah. uh, really having a great eye. So, but Monteith's definitely involved in that. So you've got Hughes, you've got Monteith writing encouraging letters to Philip Larkin, uh, subscribing to his early collection with the Marvel Press, uh, making sure he comes on to Faber or comes back to Faber because we published his early uh, novels or novel. Then you've got a week after Eliot dies, uh, Monteith writes to Seamus Heaney, saying we've seen your poems in the New Statesman, really like them, uh, would love to see more when you've got enough for a collection. He's writing to John McGann saying, love the an extract we read in this obscure literary magazine that folded after six issues, but clearly he'd read it. Uh, or he and his team, I think you've got to give credit to some of the young people around him too. Uh, so people were like Frank Pike, and um, most obviously uh, the current editor of the, of the LRB, Mary Kay Wilmers. It seems to me, again, Faber has got this magic about it that means that anyone who's a decent poet is going to send their stuff in. That, that's what puts them in such a great position is they see everything now, which ones are the best from what we're getting? Would you say that's... I think that's right. I'm you don't have to necessarily reach out because everyone's sending their stuff to them. True. But that just gives you a problem in terms of, you know, how on earth you sort through it all. There's no, uh, there's no right or wrong way. There's no rule about it. Uh, Elliot and Monteith always used to suggest to poets that they should make their name in the literary magazines and gradually build up a collection. And at some point, they'd be, they'd be ripe for publishing by Faber. But then you look at somebody like Ted Hughes, and he didn't do that. I mean, so Seamus Heaney, that was absolutely Charles Monteith reaching out to him uh, because okay. he'd seen his poetry published. Yeah. Uh, Seamus always used to say, you know, he got this letter from Russell Square and thought it was like getting a letter from Almighty God. Yeah, that's and that's right. the reaction you want poets to have, of course. <laughs> and Heaney recommended uh, Paul Muldoon to Monteith, right? Well, exactly. So that's the other part of what, if you've got your own talent, your own poets acting as talent spotters for you, then that helps too. <laughs> yeah. So did Monteith recruit Robert McCrum or not? Not directly. I mean, he was definitely involved in that recruitment and he was chairman at the time and clearly uh, welcomed Robert to the firm. But I think you probably, the real recruiter Robert McCrum was Matthew Evans, was the managing director at the time. I give a little bit of credit to my mother, yeah? Yes, uh, Penny, yes. <laughs> my mother, Penny, because she, she knew Robert because his father and my father were colleagues, and Robert was then a junior at Chateau and Windus. Windus. And so she, she encouraged Robert to apply for the job. Right. Um, right. <laughs> uh, but it was really, by then he was, Robert was over in New York uh, on some sort of placement with FSG, uh, Farah Strauss-Giroux. And Matthew was over in New York and he and Robert met for this famous drink at the Algonquin. I think it was at the Algonquin. And basically over the course of that drink, again, I, I imagine you could say a bit like my father, my grandfather and Elliot, you know, however many years before, uh, they just got on really well <laughs> and realized that this could work. Well, yeah, he, he uh, Evans offered him the job on the spot, apparently. Yeah. And I, as, as Robert says, Evans had clearly also got the nod from Roger Strauss at FSG, that Robert yeah. probably the right thing. So he'd done a bit of research as well. I like the fact that you mentioned that whoever it was, 
at Shadow and Windus said, uh, okay, Faber, you pick up his bill for going to New York. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, that, was, that was Robert's reminiscence. That's right. And, yeah. and then again, you, so do you see him arriving in the 80s and obviously they're, they've got the money from Cats. Robert's got a really good eye for uh, good new fiction in particular. And you start to see them having fun in much the same way as they were in the 30s in terms of, uh, you know, playing jokes on each other and all these things all start happening all over again. Or perhaps they never really stopped. But anyway, uh, you really feel there's this sort of the firm is on a high in the 80s. Uh, and you, you've got private eye calling us Faber and Faber and all those sorts of things. Yeah, actually, another sort of c- controversial choice, but one that that really helped the company survive financially was it was doing a book on splitting images, was it? Well, there's a there's a television series which is just actually just started again in the UK, a satirical ter- television series called Spitting Image. Spitting uh, Image. Spit imi- spitting Image, uh, which has these which uses caricature pu- puppets of politicians and other prominent people uh, in satirical sketches. And so, yes, we did a. A spitting image book. I, I won't try and describe some of its um, more lurid pages because they are quite lurid in places, but they're terribly funny <laughs> and uh, controversial to the extent that, uh, yes, I quote that letter from a member of staff who was absolutely shocked that we're doing, actually, absolutely shocked that we're doing a not the nine o'clock news calendar, which is an, an earlier satirical thing. Yeah. Um, and then since quoting that, I've wondered if that letter itself was a joke. I still don't know because right. it almost right. could be. It could be somebody being very straight, straight laced, but pretending to be straight laced. Yes, yes. But again, the point being, you got to go with the times. What, what, uh, what makes immediate sense? And uh, these sort of publications pay the freight for other yeah. more serious stuff. And 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 you can you should never be too precious about these things. I think as long as you have the overwhelming view that whatever you publish is good, good in its own lights, it, even if it's a different field from what Faber is famous for, yeah. uh, then I think you, are, you won't be undermining the brand. Yeah, I think that's the key, isn't it? It's the quality within its field is what counts rather than trying to stick to a certain house style. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, you know, the most, it's most obvious in many ways in our poetry list, isn't it? We don't publish one type of poetry. No. In the, in the 30s, we were famous for being the modernist poetry publisher. Even that didn't mean just one type of poetry. But certainly now, by now, it's basically poetry that's good. I mean, it's, it's an awfully subjective thing to say. And, yes. Uh, but that's, uh, that's what you try to do without being too prescriptive about what that means. Right. Now, uh, finally, on the on the independence front, and and basically making money, you um, point to the fact that Faber made a decision to sort of be vertically integrated by publishing both hardbacks and paperbacks. You you point to that as being really crucial. Absolutely, and I don't think anybody quite realize at the time how crucial it was but this is with the benefit of hindsight and you look back at it and we've talked about how Faber's backlist is what gives it some sort of financial stability so especially in years when perhaps your front list isn't quite so good to know you've got that guaranteed turnover from your backlist is really important that backlist of course is all going to be in the form of paperbacks because that's how their shelves and the bookshops that's the way in which that's the form in which books backlist So if you are essentially giving away your backlist by selling it for some short-term profit gain to a specialist paperback publisher, then you are giving up that long-term stability. And you see this most obviously in the way that by the end of the 1980s, Faber was almost the last man standing in terms of publishers in in London with any history. Mm -hmm. So all the other great names who hadn't done their own paperbacks, or if they had done them had done them in joint ventures or things with other people. So you can reel off the names, of course, the Jonathan Cates, the Chateau and Windesses, the Hamish Hamiltons, the Bodley Heads. I mean, I, you, you really can just go on and on with names, all of which are great names. They uh, are. And yeah. had, had really good backlists and still have really good backlists. Uh, but those backlists are all 
mainly, frankly, in Penguin Random House or possibly Harper Collins or uh, whoever it is, Hachette. They are not still with the firms that bought them because those firms have long since been acquired. That doesn't stop Penguin Random House trying to cash in on the, the brands, though, of course. <laughs> no, it doesn't. And, you know, I'm not here to criticize Penguin Random House because it's clearly a very successful company. Uh, but I would say quite definitely that I really think the Faber brand, and I've, we started with this, means something now. And however good a brand and however good the publisher at Hamish Hamilton say is, it just isn't quite the same thing because it's, in the end, just part of a conglomerate. Well, I think that's uh, the really important point. Faber's independence makes a fundamental difference to how it publishes. So what's that difference? Well, that difference is basically, I mean, it's just in the culture of the firm and in the attitude it brings to what it does. So a culture of the firm, which is independent in the sense of, People are free to make their own decisions. I mean, clearly my family and the Elliott Foundation these days, we are the shareholders in the firm, but we would never for a moment think of interfering in editorial decisions and we don't. So there's that sense of standing or falling by your own decisions, standing or falling both in terms of when it comes to an individual book, but also, and I think this is important in terms of the finances of the firm itself, that the firm has to make sense as a financial entity in order to remain independent. And that means, of course, that forces it to carry on thinking hard about the balance of the list it has each year in terms of that balance between long-term. So it can't just publish airy-fairy nonsense that it thinks might be popular in 50 years' time. Because that is no... That is no I love those kind of books. Well, yeah. <laughs> that, that is as sure a route to irrelevance as a publisher as anything. <laughs> so you really do have to have that balance. Yeah. And I think, frankly, the financial... The financial discipline uh, that comes from maintaining independence is part of what ensures you have that balance. Yeah, exactly. Uh, you've got that imperative, really, uh, that hones your uh, decision-making process. Yeah. Uh, and you've also got everything else. You've got the, what we've already talked about, you know, the fact that your, joint, that your new authors are joining this backlist, uh, that to readers who know and care about these things, and they're, they're a minority, admittedly, but to those who do know and care about these things, it matters that it's a favor, favor book. To authors, it most obviously matters. To critics, it matters. I mean, I still think probably Faber does really well in getting review space and attention and social media or whatever it is because of what it is as well. Yeah. Also because of, frankly, the books are so good, but that's another matter. <laughs> you talked about the Elliott Foundation. First of all, Faber has sort of acted as an agent for Valerie Elliott, and that's how the company has made money off it. So Valerie must have made monstrous money. <laughs> I mean, I, all I do is I quote Andrew Lloyd Webber on this, uh, who this is about cats, of course. So, yes, Faber has, has generally been a, a, an agent for the Elliott estate and most importantly, was an agent for the Elliott estate when Cats became a musical, when T.S. Eliot's poems became a musical. So as Andrew Lloyd Webber says about cats, it's been a pension fund for all concerned. I, obviously, I'm not going to go into figures, uh, no. but there's no doubt that the money not, that Faber received as its potential was really important to the firm, 1980s in particular. Sure. Uh, it's still not nothing. You know, it's still uh, a sizable sum each year. And so, yes, the, so that really uh, meant that Valerie uh, obviously received more. Uh, and therefore, when... And this is obviously where I closed the book. But when in 1990, we wanted to make it clear that the firm was not going to be sold, to guarantee that independence. Yeah. The best way of doing that uh, was to make it impossible for us, the Faber family, to sell it. And the way we did that was by bringing in Valerie as a co-shareholder. It achieved other things as well. It enabled us to uh, create a, an employee share ownership scheme at the time. That was one of the reasons at the time, although that's now folded. So now we're back. We're back to having these two co-shareholders uh, in the company, exactly equal shareholders, each wanting to keep it independent, each one there in case the other one blinks, although clearly that, that hasn't been an issue so far. And as I say, in the end, the best way of guaranteeing Faber's independence is for it to carry on being commercially successful as well as, as successful yeah. in the literary sense. 
Well, isn't that lovely that blood ownership goes back to Jeffrey and T.S. Eliot? Yeah. I mean, and that's obviously how I opened the book as well, because in the end, it's that relationship between the two of them that provides the firm with its core, certainly for the first uh, 30 or 40 years, but arguably ever since as well, in terms of the direction that the firm has taken. Now, that would be a lovely place to end, but I've got one more question. <laughs> Go on. <laughs> You say that Faber's independence is part of what makes it a natural home for some of the world's most significant writers. So how does it do that? How is it natural? Well, the, you know, the, the cop-out answer to that would be ask a writer and they'll tell you. Because I, I mean, at, at one level, I just know, I know there are writers to whom it really matters that Faber is independent and who feel that it make, it gives something special to the way they are published and the way they are looked at for being published by Faber. Other than that, I think, but I think it, come, it comes back to kind of what I was already talking about. It does mean Faber has a culture uh, which is different from that of other publishers because we combine the history uh, that goes with 90 years of publishing and the back fist that goes with 90 years of publishing with still though the sort of entrepreneurial outlook and fleet footedness and eagerness to try new things and all that sort of stuff uh, that goes with being independent that goes with being relatively small and I think it does make us <laughs> I mean there have been times in the past when this hasn't been true but I think at the moment it's definitely true it makes us good publishers actually yeah uh, and writers appreciate that and to a certain extent I think readers and other people appreciate that too. Does anyone know how big Faber is aside from you and a few others? Like oh, what? Our, our accounts are public knowledge. I mean so uh, turnover goes up and down a little bit but has been generally increasing over the last few years. It's of the order of 20 million pounds sterling our, our turnover. Basically we are way smaller than all the obvious big ones. Yeah, I was going to say, uh, uh, yeah, okay. Yeah, they're in the billions. I recently interviewed uh, Andy Hunter, who's come up with quite a wonderful way, I think, for readers to support independent bookstores. It's uh, bookshop.org, isn't it? Bookshop.org. Yeah. One of the things that stood out for me in our conversation was that he said that they they've written it up in their company papers or, or whatever it is that they will never sell to amazon yeah <laughs> well i can understand i mean I, I, that's particularly crucial for for them because they are there to service independent bookstores to whom amazon isn't i think it's fair to say no friend um, <laughs> So, absolutely, yes, I can see why they do that. Well, um, so, I mean, coming back to, if, if you're trying to draw a parallel there between Faber and books, so we would not write that into our papers. We would not be that definite because I think that would be a way of breeding complacency. If you think, basically, Faber will remain independent as long as it remains sense to, for it to remain independent. That is as far as I can see into the future. Uh, as long as it I, remains what? It, as long as it remains makes sense for it to remain independent. And what does and that it really mean? It does make sense for it to remain independent. Uh, there's no advantage that I can see uh, to anybody published by Faber, but more crucially, from this point of view, to, to its shareholders in trying to stop it being independent because it is doing so well as an independent company. And if you start saying... If you say it will always remain independent, as, I mean, I, I don't want to raise, I don't want to raise any concerns at all because I think it probably always will remain independent, and I've got no grounds for thinking it won't. But I don't want to say, nor do I want to say that's an absolute guarantee because it seems to me that that way you somehow stop people feeling the need to make profits, and actually it should, it should feel the need to make profits because uh, that's part of what keeps it viable. Actually, not just viable but vital. I do feel I should never guarantee it or remain independent, but I don't want to make anybody think that we have any plans to sell it because we don't. <laughs> you know, it's a 
No, but I suppose if it's just a it's insane amount of money, uh, I, you know, I I suppose that might be part of it. I think an insane amount of money alone wouldn't do it, actually, in a funny sort of yeah. way. It would have to be that coupled with the fact that we didn't think Faber was viable as an independent company. And actually, we don't see any sign of that at the moment. Quite the reverse. Quite the reverse. Well, we're lucky. We're lucky to have Faber, and uh, I'm I'm lucky to have been able to talk to you, uh, Toby. Thank you for uh, taking the time. Well, thank you very much, Nigel. Um, it's always it's always a pleasure to talk to you. Toby Faber is the grandson of Jeffrey Faber, and the chairman and a non-executive director of sister company Faber Music. Thanks again. Thanks, Nigel.